Let's pray. Dearest Heavenly Father, as we open our Bibles, help us to remember that this is your word for us today, as much as it was that of the Israelites settling in the Promised Land. We, may we know that this word is true and without fault. We can trust what you have to tell us. We can base our lives off of it. We can set our hopes on it. In these precious pages, you make yourself known to us. And what a breathtaking thing that you, the God of the universe, will let us know you. May your spirit use these chapters to illuminate our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There are so many incredible stories from World War II. Stories of heroism and sacrifice. Stories of endurance and salvation at just the right moment. Today I want to tell you a story of miraculous escape, or at least the claim of one. In the early summer of 1943, a man claiming to be John Capes presented himself at the British consulate in Smyrna. He then told how, two years earlier, he had been traveling secretly aboard a submarine when it was hit by a mine off the coast of Axis-controlled Greece. Upon impact, Capes was thrown from his bunk across the room, but was relatively unhurt. However, he was only able to find three other sailors alive, albeit injured. He knew the sub was equipped with a new form of escape gear called a rebreather, but it was designed to work no deeper than 100 feet, and the depth meter showed that they were at 270 feet at the time of impact and sinking quickly. Still, with no other option, Capes equipped the three injured sailors as well as himself with rebreathers, took a swig of rum, opened the hatch, and swam to the surface. Upon reaching the surface, it was dark out, and he used his flashlight to search for his fellow sailors, but there was no trace of them. He could just make out some white cliffs in the distance to which he managed to swim. He then spent the better part of two years hiding on this Greek island. Finally, some brave Greek fishermen snuck him out in a fishing boat and sailed the 400 miles to Smyrna. The officials who heard this story were skeptical. Although submarine sinkings were common, survivors were not. There were only four in all of World War II. Further, the depth from which he had to surface was far beyond that for which the rebreather was designed. It was protocol for the hatch on submarines to be welded shut and thus impossible for him to open as he said he had. Further, he wasn't even listed on the log and was a well-known storyteller, making a living from writing far-fetched tales of heroism. For all of these reasons, the authorities did not believe his account. So, although Capes' story would have earned him a medal if it were true, instead, his unbelievable claims of heroism brought him only shame. In our text, God also makes big claims about what he has done. There are grand claims of keeping every promise and conquering nations. Is it true? Yes, as amazing as the claims may be, Joshua's generation had seen it with their own eyes. In fact, God alone could have done these great works, and thus he rightly deserves our worship, a worship that draws upon all that we are, a worship that allows for no room for anyone or anything else in our hearts. God is worthy of our wholehearted worship. In this final lesson on Joshua, we'll look at our text in three divisions, faithful words, the choice, and testimony of hope. 
Our first division, Faithful Words, will cover Joshua chapter 23. In this division, Joshua calls Israel together to remind them that God is faithful to keep his covenant and will bless them if they are faithful. If they failed, he would remove his blessing. Chapter 23 begins with a summons. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officials. Coming to the end of his life, Joshua must be thinking about what would become of future generations. What would they need to know? What should his last words of instruction be to them? He needed to remind them of all that the Lord had done on their behalf. Continuing in verse 3, You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all of these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who fought for you. Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off. God had promised this land to Abraham 300 years before, and he was faithful to give it to them. In his wisdom, he intentionally left a few of the Canaanites still living in the land as stewards. As Israel multiplied and needed to expand, God promised to give them success in moving these remaining pagans out. God was faithful in the past, and God promised to be faithful as needed in future years. Who else keeps promises spoken hundreds of years prior? Who else is so faithful? Who else continues in faithfulness as need arises? There's only one. And thus God is worthy of our wholehearted worship. The logic of this text is clear as Joshua moves from the astounding truth of what God has done to the rightful implications for Israel in response. Look with me at verse 6. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left. This is the same charge that God gave Joshua at the beginning of the conquest, and we were told that Joshua did just that. He was very careful to obey everything that he had been instructed to do. He knew firsthand the blessedness of obedience. We find God's instruction in the fullness of his word to us. To live within the confines of the Bible takes strength of will. The command to be strong and obey is not a call to use our own internal fortitude, but rather it should drive us to God on our knees, relying on scripture and the encouragement of fellowship with other believers. We can only obey by the strength that God gives us. As much as obedience is a supernatural work of God in our lives, it is also a natural outflow of our hearts when we realize all God is and all he has done. Obedience is worship. We obey our sovereign. When we obey, we declare that God is Lord. The truth is we can have only one master. Our culture has moved away from including the vow to obey our husbands in marriage ceremonies. It's a very serious thing to commit to obey someone. It requires a lot of trust. It is opening oneself up to the possibility of hurt, its vulnerability. But this is what our divine bridegroom is asking of us. In committing to obedience, we show that God is worthy of our wholehearted worship. Now in verses 7 and 8, God moves from general obedience 
with a specific instruction to remain separate from the people of the land, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or to make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you have done to this day. Multiple times in this passage, God tells his people to cling to him. This is the same phrase that God uses in Genesis 2.24, as he instructs husbands to leave their father and mother and cling to their wives. Although you have to be careful drawing associations from modern Hebrew words back to the Bible, here it is helpful to know that the modern Hebrew word for glue is derived from this word, cling. The purpose of glue is to hold two things together and not to let anything else come between them. This is the picture of what God wants of us. God loves us and wants us to love him with nothing between us. In verses 9 and 10, Joshua reminds Israel again of the benefit of this wholehearted devotion to God. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. In other words, no one can stand against you when God is fighting with you. As New Testament believers, we no longer wield a sword against the Amorites, but we are called to fight a spiritual battle. And in Ephesians 6, we're told that when we put on Christ himself, we are able to stand against our spiritual enemies. What a mighty warrior we have fighting for us. This one man, Jesus, puts all his and our enemies to flight. God is worthy of our wholehearted worship. However, to love wholeheartedly in the midst of a God-hating world takes great care. Verse 12, For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. This may seem like a random rule to pull out and emphasize. But God knew that the intimacy of marriage can't help but impact our, their hearts. The attitudes and values of our spouses influence us. Paul echoes this admonition in 1 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? The unmarried women in our lives need to know whom we choose to date and eventually marry is an act of worship. God is worthy of our wholehearted worship. God's faithfulness is a double-edged sword, faithful to keep both his covenant blessings and curses. Verse 14, Not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you, but just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things. This is an echo of what took place at Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, where on one mountain the blessings were read, and on the other the curses. We need a full-bodied view of God. He loves to bless his people, but he is just, and part of his goodness is cursing those who disobey. Paul paints the same picture of God in Romans 11.22. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. 
No other God or man extends grace so generous, and so our hearts overflow with gratitude. Likewise, no other God or man is so righteous in judgment as to drive us to reverently bow the knee. In both his blessing and his curse, God is worthy of our wholehearted worship. Still, there's a repetition of the word good throughout this passage. Time after time, Joshua references good things that the Lord your God promised and this good land that the Lord your God has given you. God really is good. We also know from experience that there's no one else who is perfectly good. Certainly not the gods of the Canaanites who demanded the sacrifice of children upon their altar. And in an upside-down morality, called the lustful infidelity of temple worship God-honoring. No, God alone is truly good, and God is worthy of our wholehearted worship. One of the ways in which God is good is that he keeps his promises. Notice the phrase, not one word has failed. Literally, Joshua says, none of God's words fell to the ground. I like this image. Because, like trying to hold many things for any extended time, it's difficult not to let something fall. When my kids put away their clothes, there's often a trail of garments behind them. Likewise, it's hard to keep a promise. God's promises of land, a great nation, and to fight for them were not little easy-to-hold promises, and he couldn't set them down quickly. Rather, he bore the weight of them generation after generation. When God is slow to keep a promise, rather than doubting his goodness, we should be in awe of his forbearing faithfulness. Our first truth is, God alone is faithful and thus worthy of our wholehearted worship. What has God done for you that testifies to his love for you? How can you work to remember this in the moments when you struggle to obey? The record of God's mighty works on your behalf only continue from these pages in Joshua, another 3,500 years of his love and faithfulness, in fact. The apex of God's love is expressed in Christ's coming to earth in flesh and dying on the cross for our sins. Greater love has no one than this, that Jesus lay down his life for you. When God is slow to keep his promises, how does the account of Joshua help your heart to wait in faith? It's stunning to see the detail and extent to which God kept every one of his promises to Israel. He won't let a single one of his promises to you fall to the ground either. He is faithful. Joshua 23 addresses the question, how do we remain faithful when we are surrounded by faithlessness? Although this word from God was originally from the late bronze period, this is a question vitally relevant to us today. How do we live for Christ when everything around us is trying to pull us away? Remember, recite, review, recount all the ways in which God has been faithful, all the ways God has loved you, all the ways God has fought for you, all the ways God has provided for you. Romans 12.2 tells us to continually be in the word so that we will not be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewal of our minds. When we come to God's word and read it as our own history, as what God has done for us, then our hearts are renewed as well. 
What does the world actually have to offer in comparison to the account of love that we see in these pages? Now we'll turn to our second division, the choice, in chapters 24, verses 1 through 28. In this division, Joshua calls Israel together at Shechem to see if they want to continue in God's covenant. Again, there's a summons, but this time it was specifically to Shechem, the very place that God had made his great promise to their ancestor Abraham, that they, his descendants, would live in this very land. And now here they stood. What comes next is technically a historical prologue, part of a covenant in which the greater Lord recounts all the ways that he has served and blessed the lesser party as reason to confirm their mutual loyalty. Verse 2. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan. What gracious love! There's no room for pride here. It was God's grace from the start, and it continued to be God's grace, leading and preserving his people. Our gracious God is worthy of our wholehearted worship. God's faithfulness at times may have seemed slow or small, as it did with Abraham only having one son and two grandsons when he was promised nations. But from their vantage point, Joshua's generation can see the astounding breadth of God's promise-keeping. And we, an engrafting of nations, know it even more fully. What comes next, however, is not what you would expect to find on a resume of faithfulness. Joshua doesn't shy away from the mystifying ways in which God works. Although God chose Jacob, he gave Esau Mount Seir while sending his own chosen down to Egypt to be enslaved. Again, God brought his people to the edge of the sea, with nowhere to turn as the Egyptian army hurtled towards them. We grapple with the inexplicable working of God in our own lives as well. Our text today gives us a bearing when we live in the bewildering hardships that God allows. He has a plan. He has a purpose. He can save us out of hardship. He keeps his promises. We can wait in faith because we see that he will make the end glorious from one son to nations. Isn't it refreshing that our God is honest and doesn't hide the hard parts of this history? He's not ashamed of them. They're still a part of his record of faithfulness. In fact, we see it was precisely in these hardest of situations that God most gloriously revealed his work on behalf of his people. In our weakness, he is strong. God is worthy of our wholehearted worship. The saga of God's goodness continues as we see his provision for his people in the wilderness. It's hard to survive in the desert. You can die within hours if you aren't prepared. And yet, God kept them, giving them their daily bread as well as water. This was yet another precarious point in their history at which everything could have gone wrong but it didn't. And wholehearted praise be to God, they witnessed a 40-year miracle. In verses 8 through 10, the mighty warrior God was at work on behalf of his people as he gave them victory on the far side of the Jordan. God's protection was so complete that he even protected his people from being cursed. Balaam, a pagan prophet hired to curse Israel, tried three times to curse them, 
but God would not let him. In fact, in verse 10, Joshua points out that God would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed them. And from the lips of this pagan prophet came the greatest of all blessings, the promise of a Messiah. All this while the tents of Israel rustled in the wind below. They didn't know the danger they were in, but God did, and God protected them. He knows what we need even before we do. How many times has God saved us from dangers unbeknownst to us? God is worthy of our wholehearted worship. The victories continued as God brought Israel across the Jordan. But in addition to God's role as a valiant hero, his generous love is highlighted. Verse 11. And I gave them into your hand. It was not by your sword or, or your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built. And you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. God revealed his power as he gave Israel victory over city after city. Who has a strong arm like this? And who gives such lavish gifts as cities already built and fields already tilled? What abundant provision flowing from our gracious God. Here is generosity. Here is lavish love. Here is a lover wooing the object of his affection. There's no one so generous. No one. And the promised land is just a picture of the greater home we have waiting for us in heaven. A home of abundance and joy. A home we did not build. Jesus is there now preparing it for us. God is the one and only worthy of our worship. Note that Joshua uses a pronoun shift from your fathers to you to make clear that God did all these things for this generation standing before him on that day in Shechem. This history is their history. As believers, this is our history too. It's all too easy to distance ourselves from these things by making faith a matter of subjective feelings, as if what matters is how we feel about God rather than knowing and acting on what God has done. Don't get me wrong. Intellectually, we always know God has done great things on our behalf, but our hearts are quick to forget. Likewise, Joshua knew, as the memories faded, the pull to act upon their current feelings or desires for the Israelites would easily draw them away from God. They, and we, need the knowledge of what God has done to anchor us, no matter what we may be feeling in the moment. Next, Joshua appeals to Israel to make a covenant commitment to God. It is a logical outflow of all that's come before, as we see from the words, Now, therefore, in verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord, and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. Choose this day whom you will serve. Our faithfulness now is the right response to God's faithfulness through history. Paul uses the same logic in Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, my brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Let's take a moment to look at what constitutes worship. Singing songs of praise to God is a great start, but it's more. In fact, our whole lives are to be worship. As Paul put it, living a life to his service is an act of worship. And this is the same picture that Joshua paints as he tells Israel not to turn to the right or to the left, 
but to be careful to obey all that God had told them. Our text also has a theme of love and devotion that parallels the logical argument for covenant faithfulness. Our head and our heart are both won by this great God. He wants more than words from our lips, but the entirety of our lives and our hearts. To love him is to worship him. Remember, we were created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In worship, there's an element of both the transcendent and the imminent. God is entirely different, completely faithful, good, honest, etc., and therefore worthy of worship. God is also the one who is near, compassionate and gentle, and desires to be our one love. Although we can distinguish worship and love with words, they can't be separated in application. Joshua's head and heart were convinced, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua's choice to serve God is grammatically an ongoing one. He chose to serve God, he continues to choose to submit to God, and he will choose God over all else until his very last breath. Likewise, believers must continually choose God. Regular conscious renewal of our covenant with God is a spiritually vital exercise. What would our lives look like if we woke up each day and asked ourselves, who would serve that day? Would the use of our time, energy, and resources look different? God is worthy of our wholehearted worship yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Also, there's the implied truth about the worth and freedom with which God created us. We are not automatons set in motion to serve God. No, far more gloriously, we are free to choose. And when we choose God, it glorifies him. However, we cannot choose for someone else. We cannot make our children or grandchildren serve God, but we can tell them about who he is and what he has done. We can tell them about God's mighty works as recorded in the Bible, and surely we should tell them about what, he, what we have seen with our own eyes. And we must pray that God will soften their hearts to choose him. This is not a decision to be made lightly. Verses 19 through 20. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. Here we see a covenant with God is a very serious thing for two reasons. First, God wants all of you. He will not abide sharing your heart's affection with anyone or anything. Behind God's jealousy is his treasuring of you. What a compliment. Secondly, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. As intense as his devotion to those who are his, so too is his heavy hand upon those who give their heart to someone or something else. Do not be deceived. God will settle for nothing less than an exclusive commitment, wholehearted worship. These other things that vie for our affection are called idols. And whenever we live for something other than God, that is an idol. When we turn to something other than God for security, love, identity, peace, solace, forgiveness, that is an idol. It can be tricky because God has given us many good gifts that can become idols if we misuse them. 
As Paul warns in Romans, we must be careful to worship the Creator, not the creation. Our emotions can be a litmus test to help us examine our hearts and see when idols are taking the place of God. What saddens you? What angers you? What delights you? These all help us see what or whom we really value. In verse 24, Israel affirms their wholehearted choice. The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. Therefore Joshua renews the covenant. And he took a large stone and set it there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. We've seen many stones in Joshua, all teaching us different things about God. So what does this stone reveal? And whatever became of this stone of witness? We've seen the stone in 1 Peter 2, Christ, the chosen stone, which gives witness if we are aligning ourselves with Jesus and being built into a spiritual house with him as the cornerstone, or that we are living aligned to other gods, and thus Jesus is just something in the way, something we stumble over and take offense to. It's no small choice. Israel made their choice that day in Shechem. They promised to serve God and no other. If you have vowed, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee, that's no small thing. It's a good vow. It's a right vow and one that should spring from our lips and our hearts. But we mustn't let it fall to the ground. You've seen that God does not take promise making lightly. He doesn't let one promise fall. We need to be very careful to keep our promises, especially our promises to God. Our second truth is God is worth wholehearted choosing. Whom will you wholeheartedly choose to serve today? What other things vie for your heart? What will you do to ensure that God has your whole heart? The example we see in this passage is to recite all that God has done and review what kind of God he is. Meditate on these things when you feel prone to wander, prone to leave the God you love. Let that grace now like a fetter, bind your wandering heart to him. Our third division is the testimony of hope in verses 29 through 33. In this final division, three leaders of great faith are buried in the land God gave them. Throughout the book of Joshua, there's a theme of God's faithfulness. And in these final verses, we find still more proof that God keeps his word and blesses those who keep covenant with him. Joshua lived a long life, a sign of blessing in the Bible. And in the end, he was buried in Shechem, the very place where 600 years earlier, Abraham had received the promise, a promise that had shaped his life as he, in faith, obeyed God's call to clear the land so that God's people could come in. Because of this, Joshua is described as a servant of the Lord, the same title Peter uses. To serve God is an honor. To pour out our lives as living sacrifices is our spiritual act of worship. It is a joy to do so when we know that God is worthy of our wholehearted worship. Joseph also glorified God in his last words, words of great faith in a faithful God, Genesis 50, 24-25. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. 
Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. This is a testimony of hope in God's faithfulness. And so the burial of his bones are yet another picture of God's promise keeping. This faithful God is worthy of our wholehearted worship. Further, the burials of all three men are testimonies of faith in that by being buried, as opposed to other forms of disposing of a body that did not keep the body intact, they believe there is hope of life beyond the grave. Although they could not yet know the fullness of what God would do at the cross to free us from the power of death, they had hope in God raising them to life again. Job 19.26 And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. In life and death, these men worshipped, their faith in a faithful God evident to all. Their burials are evidence that they believed God is worthy of our wholehearted worship. As theologian Rhett Dodson explains, the concluding words of Joshua present us with the record of Israel's leader, Joshua, their savior, Joseph, and their high priest, Eliezer, all dead and buried in the land of promise. They were buried in the land because God fulfilled his word, just as Joseph said he would. But they all died. The book ends, therefore, with assurance and hope, with the desire for a leader, a savior, and a high priest, who, though crucified and buried in the land of promise, rose again to everlasting life to give us an eternal inheritance, one that is pure and undefiled, reserved in heaven for all those who put their hope in him. Jesus, our undying leader, savior, and high priest, is worthy of our wholehearted worship. Our third truth is, God is our hope and therefore worthy of our wholehearted worship. What would it mean for you to live as a servant of the Lord? How can your death be a testimony of hope? What will you do to ensure that it is so? Funerals can be stages for witness to the beauty of the gospel to an audience of unusually tender hearts, something worth planning and praying over. In closing, isn't it one of our deepest desires to be loved, to be loved by someone wonderful, even though they know us through and through, not just that they grudgingly put up with us, but cherish us, fight for us, put their name on us, declare their love for others to see, provide for us, protect us, shower us with gifts, give us a home where we can enjoy life together. God has done all this in our text. This covenant isn't just a contract. Don't you see? It's a love story. The intensity of this love for us is breathtaking if we recognize it for what it is. To return this kind of deep, faithful, sacrificial love requires a giving of all that we are. It is vulnerable, nothing held back, no part of yourself that you keep from your divine bridegroom, no evading or deceiving or pulling back. Give yourself to him, and as terrifying as that may be, we can trust that he will be true sisters we can trust him with our hearts he doesn't let us down he keeps his promises he will never abandon you and thus he deserves our whole heart on december 26 1997 
Greek divers discovered the wreckage of a submarine with a cracked hull consistent with a mine explosion. The aft escape hatch was open. There was an empty bottle of rum, and the depth gauge showed 270 feet. John Capes had, in fact, set a new record for surviving a shipwreck. Twelve years after his death, all that John had claimed was proven true, and he was finally vindicated. For John, the proof came too late. But as for God's claims, we have the proof now. Give him his due. God is worthy of our wholehearted worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, O Lord of our hearts, not be all else to us save that thou art, thou and thou only, first in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.